Hi, this is Russell. Welcome to A Life in Music, the podcast dedicated to performers who want to be their very best. I've spent my life working in an industry I love, professionally since the age of eight years old. I love what I do, and I'm still as passionate today as I have ever been. This industry is full of ups and downs, but it's still a wonderful industry, and A Life in Music is here to support performers with interviews from creatives to artists, behind-the-scenes insights, tips and tricks, and as much support as I can give to help you become the very best you can be. Now I've something to ask you. There are three ways in which you can help me reach more people. This not only benefits others, but also gives me the opportunity of getting great content to you. The more listeners I have, the more weight this platform has, and this in turn gives me my opportunities of getting even more great interviews and great content to you. Now, firstly, please go to my website at www.alifeinmusic.com and sign up to the newsletter. This means you'll be the first to hear about new content on the site and new podcasts as they become available. There's also some exclusive benefits that come from time to time. Secondly, please review the podcast. This is incredibly important to me. It takes a couple of minutes and if you go onto the website you'll find some very simple instructions. Please leave me a great review. This is the best opportunity for me to get further exposure from iTunes. And thirdly, just spread the word. Tell people about the podcast and the website and get them to have a listen. And finally, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your support. We have listeners from all over the world. This podcast is for you and I do it for no monetary benefit whatsoever. This is my way of sharing my experiences and wisdom from a life in music. And now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Life in Music with Russell Scott. On today's show, I'm interviewing a legendary actress in the world of theatre. She's probably best known for her performance in the 1971 production of Godspell, but has gone on to perform in such a huge array of musicals and theatre. And I am absolutely thrilled to interview this uh, amazing talent, amazing lady whose career spans over 50 years. This is my interview with Gay Soper. So good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you on this show. Thank you so much for spending the time uh, to do this. I know you're incredibly busy. Tell me a little bit of what, what are you doing at the moment? What's uh, what, what are you in? Oh, I'm, I'm in Death Takes a Holiday at the Charing Cross Theatre. Um, the music is a musical. It's based uh, upon an old Italian uh, novel which then became a black-and-white movie in the early 30s and then became a more modern movie in more recent times but with a slightly different ending. Uh, So, yes, Death Takes a Holiday. It's a sort of uh, metaphysical story about what is life, what is death, what is love. It's, It's kind of that kind of a thing. Terribly romantic and lush, beautiful sets, wonderful costumes. It's set in Italy... Uh, just after the end of the First World War, and we're on 
until March the 4th. Wow, well that's a good plug and it says it all, so <laughs> I've got no more questions on that one. Let's start at the very beginning. I, I, <laughs> I'd like to hear about your life and you've, you, you know, in, in 2015 you celebrated 50 years in this industry. Tell me how it all began, where did yeah. it all start? Well, I, I suppose it began when I was about three. My parents took me to see Peter Pan, which in those days was done every year, every Christmas season, at a little theatre that no longer exists called the Scala Theatre. We lived uh, in suburbia, in Surrey, uh, so we came a, a trip to London in those days was a sort of huge event and didn't happen very often. And they took me up to London to see Peter Pan, and uh, I just fell in love with the magic of it all, with Peter Pan flying through the air, and uh, the whole story. I just was so enchanted by it. Um, and that was, I think, so the seed for me. Um, I always really did believe in magic, and I think I still do, though perhaps not in the same way now as I did when I was three. So, so how did you start, um, when did you then, start performing? when I was six, um, well, I was sent to elocution lessons when I was five because I was very, very shy. I used to hide behind my mother's skirts. I wouldn't say boo to a goose. And she thought, well, this will either make her or break her. So she sent me in for elocution lessons. And um, she thought, well, you know, let's let's give it a chance. Let's see what happens. So she left me in the lesson with all the other little girls and boys. And she went to collect me an hour or so later. And she thought, well, where is my daughter? And um, all the other children had come out and they were all putting their hats and coats on and they were being collected by their mums. And I was nowhere to be seen. And then she looked into the room where we'd had our lesson and there I was standing at the teacher's knee talking the hind leg off a donkey. And my mother thought, ah, right, <laughs> I think we found it. And so I, I, it gave me confidence. It gave me everything, really. And then my mum, who was an amateur actress, a very good one, and her mother before her had been a wonderful, wonderful amateur actress. Um, I went to see my mother in a play in the church hall when I was six. So I'd been having education lessons for about a year by then, I suppose, and um, sat and watched mum. And there was my mother transformed into somebody completely different from the person that she was in real life. Um, and uh, I just was, again, entranced and enchanted. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. That is what I'm going to do for my life. And, and so it has proved to be. And did you, did you train? Where did you train? How did that all start? Yes, so, well, I had all those elocution lessons through my childhood, which meant that one was always being put in for um, what they called elocution festivals, where um, boys and girls from all walks of life um, were taught poems or little Shakespearean speeches, um, and you would be in competition against other boys and girls of your own age, and you'd all be reciting this poem with an adjudicator, who uh, would then uh, give you marks and talk about what you did and what you could do to make it better. So I learned, I really, my whole childhood was spent training. Um, and I grew and grew in, in confidence and understanding of what you had to do 
the most important thing being, of course, making sure the deaf old lady in the back row hears what you're saying, <laughs> otherwise you're just wasting your time. And I sometimes think that's a lesson that a pity seems to have been lost these days. But anyway, <laughs> and, and then after I did my A-levels, I went uh, to Lambda. Um, I'd auditioned for RADA and Central and E15, uh, but the one that took me was Lambda. And I was in a class with um, Brian Cox, Martin Shaw, Sid Heyman, Matthew Guinness, various other people. Oh, yeah. um, and we did two years. And that was fantastic. I had a simply wonderful time. Um, and then I was out in the real world. And you got your first big break, what, in 1965, I've been reading about you, and in a, a, an alternative in um, My Fair Lady. Yes. So I was. I left Lavender. I was still 19 at the time because I, I, I'd done everything earlier. I'd done, I, I don't know, I'd been jumped up a year when I was at primary school. So I took my O-levels a year early and then I took my A-levels a year early. So I went to Lambda when I was only, uh, I was just beginning, well, just, yes, just turned 17, about sort of, I was 17 because my birthday is in September. So, yes, when I left in the July, two years later, I was still 19. So I got a job before anybody else, and it was quite, it rather amused me, Riley, because um, I'd been somewhat looked down upon by some of my fellow students at Lambda because they were all busy going to see Strindberg and Tinter and uh, sort of playwrights, very erudite playwrights. And um, I'd always had a passion for musical theatre, which they really were very, very snooty about indeed. Um, and uh, But anyway, so my first audition was while I was still at Lambda, um, and I first went up for... Um, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, which was still playing in London, and apparently, I heard many years later, it was between me and one other, and the other girl got it. But the next audition was to be understudy to Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. And I got the job. And so I left Lambda before the end of the final term, at the end of the second year, and off I went to Leeds to join this immense company, uh, it was the My Fair Lady production that had been at Drury Lane, but had left Drury Lane two years before and had been on the road for uh, for two years. And uh, I went on and played Eliza ten weeks after leaving Lambda. Huh, I played wow. the whole week, and some of the costumes, yes, it was it was amazing. I bet it was daunting and, um, though as well. Some wasn't of the it? costumes. Well, I was of course I was you know I was nervous. Uh, but uh, it was so exciting, so exciting. Um, and uh, some of the costumes I wore were actually, they got the label Julie Andrews inside them. So I think I wore her ball gown and her black velvet cloak. Amazing. And um, I certainly had the flower basket and the hat that she'd worn in Act One and um, various other bits of costume that had been hers. So uh, I thought, wow. This is a fantastic, exciting start to my life in theatre. Um, and so I did that for, for nine months. And I, I went on again. I did play for a further week later on in the tour. But yes, that's how I began. Do you think, do you think putting on those very costumes and using those props 
aided to your confidence and motivation to to deliver such an amazing performance i mean what a great opportunity it was for you how many times i mean how many times did you go on and, yeah. and how what did it feel like well so the week a week was eight performances so i did it eight times and then i did it for a further eight times and so yes i don't know i mean yes it was just part of the excitement really but you know the thing is of course, Eliza Doolittle is the most brilliant role. Um, if one had done the play, I think I would have been just as excited. Um, I'm a huge lover of Bernard Shaw. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it's one of those musicals where the script is sensational. Some musicals you think, oh dear, pity about the book. But obviously, in My Fair Lady, uh, it, it's, it's, the book is simply brilliant. The writing is, is, um, is, you know, perfect. So, so it was. There was a lot to get one's teeth into. It's a re, she's a real character. Um, there's a great deal of depth. There's not. It's not as a one-sided kind of performance. So there was immense amount to 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 feel and and live. And that that leads me on now, quite quite nicely. So thank you um, to talk about Godspell because Godspell has a very difficult book, I think, to deal with. And I produced it. It's how we how we met. And you were you were cast in the original London production of of Godspell. What was that experience yes, like? Yes, I was. I was. Yes. Sorry, would you say that again? Yeah, I was just saying, what was the experience like? I mean, you were working with Jeremy Irons and David Essex. And oh, Judy what Connington was the experience and... like? Well, yes, it was quite interesting because. I was offered a play at the same time, funnily enough, a Bernard Shaw play um, at the Mermaid Theatre, which doesn't really exist any longer, um, being directed by one of my favourite directors, Philip Grouch. And he'd asked me to play the female lead in this lesser-known Shaw play. I've forgotten its name now. Anyway, um, at the same time, I was offered Godspell. And actually, I'd never been a lover of rock music at all. Um, and I thought, oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, and I really hummed and hard a lot before I accepted Godspell. Because I thought, a rock musical, this really isn't me. Um, but then it was H.M. Tennant, which was the equivalent of Cameron Mackintosh today. Uh, and, you know, you thought, well, I can't really. I can't turn down that. So I accepted it. And got into rehearsal, and I agree, the script is, um, well, bizarre, I suppose you would say. <laughs> That's one of course, way. <laughs> it was based entirely upon um, improvisation, as you probably know, mm. um, because the it, the whole show was devised by uh, the wonderful John Michael Tebelak, uh, who was, um, all, originally, he was, he was born to a Jewish family, and he became a convert. To Christianity as a, a young adult, so it, the New Testament was all kind of rather, rather a revelation to him, and obviously it, it fired and inspired him. And he had he was a teacher; he wasn't an, a writer at all. Um, and his class doing this, I think it might have been a, a sort of uh, preparatory thing for drama school. I'm not quite sure, but anyway, it wasn't a pure drama school that he was teaching at. And um, between them, they improvised this piece based upon St. Matthew's Gospel. And so, of course, it was of the time, um, the time being uh, late 60s, when flower power was just, just sort of beginning to blossom. And... Um, so they put in lots and lots of funny voices, accents, 
uh, TV commercials, popular characters of the time, or politicians, or movie characters that were all current um, and, and would sort of turn the parables into something based upon those characters. Um, and so, and then, of course, it, it went on sort of off-Broadway, off and then it went off-Broadway, and never actually went on to Broadway, as far as I know, until until more recent times. So it was always a quirky piece, uh, and entirely really devised by those original people in the past, which is why I think they all have, if I'm right, uh, I think they all have a share in the royalties worldwide. So, you know, they've, they've done very well for themselves, and uh, deservedly so. But I do agree that it is very difficult to do Godspell these days because, of course, young people have changed. The influences in their lives have completely changed from when I was young. Um, flower power now is just a bit of a joke, really. Um, and so there was a kind of uh, a fashion when I was young for a kind of innocence and naivete, the sort that small children have that you know, doesn't exist these days beyond much the age of, say, six or seven, I think. So for young actors now to try to put themselves into the mindset of being completely innocent and childlike is tremendously difficult because yeah. every influence that they encounter in life, it, it tells them not to. So I think that's one of the reasons that it doesn't work. Um, there's a simplicity about Godspell that has been perhaps forgotten. Um, and so people try to embellish what they're doing when they sing it. They do far too many kind of vocal tricks. It's terribly simple music, and that's its beauty. And I think that a lot of that has been lost. But yes, I mean, I know it, it must be incredibly difficult to put God's spell on now. Only in recent years, any decent productions I've ever seen have been with school children doing it. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> well, you need to be very silly, don't you? You need to be children, I think, to be able to do it. You've got to turn into that. You've got to turn into being a child again, I think. But you've done, you've done so... You have. But then... Sorry, go on. Continue. No, I was going to say, but then all actors have to be like children, really. That's the sort of dichotomy of our lives, perhaps, that of course, we've got to grow up and pay our bills and all those things. But when we're on a stage, we must allow ourselves to be uh, innocent and ch children because we are playing. Yeah, and you've 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 played some incredible roles. And what what I'm so uh, so uh, in awe of, I suppose, is the fact that you've worked as a successful actress for fifty plus years, which is an incredible achievement. And and there are not many people that can can say that these days. That you know, it's such a fickle and difficult business. Tell me about how you yes. how you how did you make that happen? I mean, it, I'm sure it's not just luck. Um. Yeah. I don't know, really. Um, I I always had a certainty that that is what I was born to do. I do think this probably sounds silly in this day and age, but I do feel that I have a vocation. I feel that I was meant to do this, that I'm fulfilling what I was meant to do. Um, and so I've got a kind of uh, certainty about it, I think, which perhaps some, you know, some people 
think, oh, look, there's nothing else I can do. I think I'll have to do this. But it wasn't even that for me. It was simply that that is what I'm doing. So I never really, you know, questioned it. I mean, I have had periods when I've not worked. Um, I had a time when there was an agent that took over in the agency I was with, and he kind of really rather let me go. He just kind of didn't, didn't, um, he didn't put me up for enough things. But even so, other people then asked me to do things. But when I was sort of, when I have had periods of not working, I have done other jobs and absolutely loved them. Um, I've worked in offices. I, I'm quite, apparently, I'm rather good at uh, marketing. And so <laughs> I uh, it, give me a telephone, you know, and I just I just talk to people and say, oh, and, uh, you know, ask them about themselves. And, um, and then I seem to, seem to get all sorts of meetings booked for whoever I was, you know, working for. So that was, I used to do that quite a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, I basically hadn't, hardly ever stopped and I, I mean I think of course being able to sing and well I would not describe myself as a dancer but on the other hand at least I do know how to put one leg in front of another um, and uh, so being an actress and a singer and a bit of a dancer you have got three things to help you um, I also think that uh, you know you need to be an adaptable person um, and uh, you have to kind of, whatever, where, wherever the wind blows, I think you've kind of got to funnel it in a way, and you never quite know where the wind might be leading you. And you might, you know, be doing something on the fringe, you might be doing something in the West End, you might be doing a series of voiceovers, or you might be recording an old musical for somebody. You know, there's a, there's a million different things that I've done over my career. I've done pantomime. I can't say I particularly love doing pantomime, but if you've got a great director, um, the joy is the fact that your audience is full of children and often it's their first experience going to theatre. And it's such a wonderful thing to think you're, you're giving them a, a wonderful time that they'll always remember. So I think, yes, I don't know. I think I've been flexible, really, yeah. probably. Yeah, and I, I mean, you, you've 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 played some incredible roles. I mean, you've you know from, uh, you know, Madame Thénardier in Les Mis. You've been in Billy. You've you've uh, recently you were in original production of Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. I mean, what, do you have some favourite roles? What was your you know what what are the sort of highlights of your career been? Yes. Well, um, I think there've been so many. It's very difficult to. Uh, just pinpoint one or two, but I think I would first say, in fairly recent times, the play I simply adore doing is The Busybody. Uh, no one has ever heard of this, but it's by a lady writer uh, in the uh, Restoration comedy period, well, a Georgian, really. She was late, it's late uh, Restoration, early Georgian. The Busybody by Susanna Saint-Livre. And I played uh, the role of Lady Jealous Traffic. Um, originally, this role was written for a man. A uh, huge role, and I just adored it. Our director was the wonderful Jessica Swale. Uh, and I had a ball doing that. We did it at Southwark Playhouse while it was still underneath the arches at uh, London Bridge Station. 
uh, and that was fantastic. Uh, Godspell itself was a brilliant, wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, also, I think I should mention the Mixed Girls, which we did at Chichester and then brought into the West End, based upon uh, the real-life, of course, story of the Mitford sisters and their brother. Um, Patricia Hodge was uh, Nancy Mitford, uh, and uh, it was a huge success in Chichester, less so in the West End, but beautiful music, a wonderful, fascinating story of some eccentric sisters. Um, and then another show I loved doing, playing the role, was uh, a Sister Wendy musical uh, based upon the life of Sister Wendy Beckett, who's um, that art critic nun who was on the television a lot in the 90s. Uh, it's written by a lovely chap called Marcus Reeves, and he's written a very fa- fa- fascinating uh, play with music about Sister Wendy's life. So those are sort of four things that I've particularly loved. Of course, I loved doing Les Mis. I played Madame Tenardier for three years. I loved doing Canterbury Tales, which was my first West End show when I was 22. And I did that for two and a half years. Um, I've done so many things that I've loved doing. Have you done, have you done any, anything that you've really hated and that you regretted doing? Um, not off the top of my head, no. Do you have any, uh, do you have any regrets that you didn't take a particular job or make a, di- a, a di- perhaps a difficult decision in your career? I mean, you've done, I said you, you've done so much and you've probably had a lot of difficult decisions to make over the years in terms of what, what you take and what you don't take. How do you make those kind <coughs> of decisions? I mean, um, what, you know. Very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Um, I'll often ask my agent's advice um, because I think a bit of objectivity can help because um, sometimes, you know, you can you think, oh, I don't know what to do. Um, but uh, off the top of my head, I don't think I regret anything. Um, nothing nothing major. I mean, you know, if I, if perhaps if I hadn't done Godspell uh, and I'd taken the Bernard Shaw play, Perhaps I would have spent a lot more of my life working at the National Theatre than I have. But on the other hand, you know, uh, Godspell was a sensational experience. So that was, I think that was probably the right choice to have made. Um, No, I I don't, there's nothing I think, you know, that hovers large in my life saying you should have done this. No. Again, you've got to go with the flow. Yeah, who have you you worked with that's really inspired you? inspired me well gosh I, I don't know really um <laughs> Sid James was divine I mean I, I adored working with Sid James I did I did a couple of different episodes of um blessed his house I mean he was just the most gorgeous man just totally delightful um and another wonderful man who inspired me actually was Frankie Howard because I did the first ever pantomime in Chichester. Um, they'd always had Christmas shows before then, but never a pantomime. And this year, they, particular year, they did Jack and the Beanstalk, and I was Jack. And Frankie Howard was Simple Simon, and June Whitfield was the Vegetable Fairy. <laughs> oh, goodness, and, what an amazing um, cast. <laughs> 
Yeah. And frankly, Howard, people said to me before rehearsals began, oh, my God, you know, he's going to be difficult. Oh, aren't you terrified of working with him? I said, no, I think you have to meet people and see how you feel about it. And I can't begin to tell you how wonderful Frankie Howard was. And uh, he taught me quite a lot about, I mean, I think I... I think I was born with a bit of, you know, knowledge about comedy, just a, an innate knowledge of comedy. But he taught me some of the more technical things of comedy. And, and so there was a brilliant thing where, it, one of, in one of the early scenes in the in the show, I'm bringing the cow to market <laughs> to to sell the cow because we have no money. And we I bump into Simple Simon, and he stops me on the road and he says, "Hello, Jack. Chat, 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 chat." And apparently, while we're having this conversation, so Frankie said to me, now look, while we're having this little scene, the cow's udder is going to slip a bit. Now, he said, the first time it slips, he said, you don't see it, but I do. And I managed to not laugh, and I carry on with our scene. And then it slips again a bit further, and I catch it, and you catch it. And we both look at each other, and we twinkle. <laughs> and he said, and then it slips further, by which time you're beginning to laugh. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is so technical. Dear Lord. Anyway, I followed his instructions meticulously and tried every single performance to get it right according to what he told me. Because he was right. He was completely right. And then he said, by the end, you should be laughing so much. The audience will think that this has never happened in any other performance. <laughs> this has just happened for them. So he said, that's the secret. They've got to think this is completely unplanned. And he said, when you exit the scene, um, I want you to walk backwards and then turn in time to bang straight into the flat as you exit. <laughs> and he said, if you do it right you'll get an exit round. Oh, my God. Right, okay. I'll have a go. So the whole of that run of the pantomime, every performance, and there were two a day, so, you know, that's a lot of performances, and it's very tiring. Um, I had to, I worked and worked and worked at this, and once, only once, did I manage to succeed in getting that exit round. And he said to me afterwards, you see, I told you, he said, the girl who did that role before you, because apparently he'd done the script before with someone else, I don't know who it was, um, he said she could never get it. He said, yeah, he said, you're doing really well, well done. And I was just chuffed to pieces. He was fantastic. <laughs> well, he was a master so of timing, I'm very, wasn't very he? grateful. <laughs> a master of timing. But he was also a humble man, a sweet an honest man, and um, just one of the most honest, down-to-earth people I've ever met, I think. So he, he blew me away, really. I thought he was wonderful. But, um, oh, there must have been... Oh, Diana Rigg, I worked with Diana Rigg at the National, um, and she was fantastic. She said to me, um, uh, slow down, slow down. This is your scene. Take it. Make it your own. She said, I'm on stage all the time, because she was playing Mother Courage. She said, I'm on stage all the time. So she said, don't you worry about me. She said, you do it. This is your scene. Oh, and that's I very thought, nice. 
yep, okay. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. she was lovely. And I thought, thank you. That's You've given me the courage to do that. Because I think a lot of our work is to do with courage. You have to be brave enough to take a chance, to take your time if time is what's required. Of course, sometimes you've got to get a move on. And if you indulge yourself too much, it's a disaster. Uh, so, you know, you, you're learning all the time, really. I think, and we all learn from each other. We, are, we learn from people who are not good as well, you know. Yeah, and I, one I, one thing I wanted to pick up on was something from my own childhood, and I hadn't realised this till till very recently when I when I was reading all about you, is that you were the voice of all the flumps on BBC TV. Program. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> and I grew up yes. with the frump, well, with the flumps. It was one of my favourite programmes. I still remember it to yeah, this day. Well, yes, I was a, in those days. I was a very very busy voiceover artist. Um, and um, one day my agent called me and said, look, um, there's a, a little sort of, um, these little fluffy creatures called flumps. They're going to be turned into a, a, long, a series of programs for the under fives, and they want a voice to tell the story and be all the characters and sing all the songs. And she said, um, I've suggested you, would you go along and see them about it? So... I went and auditioned them for them, and uh, there was a big question mark as to what accent I should use, because um, even then, what we now think of as received pronunciation was rather sort of looked down upon. Um, it's hilarious how life changes, <laughs> because I was taught elocution when I was small, and then suddenly the way I was speaking was definitely, definitely not, not on. So they said, any accent except your own, please. So we tried it with a slightly Scottish accent. We tried it with a slightly sort of Somerset, soft accent like that. Um, then we tried a little bit Welsh. Um, and then we went to a, a sort of very loose, I suppose, but Yorkshire sort of accent. Um, and uh, so they said, yes, we like that one. So I did the thumps. So I did the narration in my own voice, but the thumps themselves were clearly somewhere in... Probably Yorkshire, um, and I expect Yorkshire <laughs> people listening to this will, will will shoot me down in flames and say that's not a Yorkshire accent you've got. But anyway, <laughs> that's what we did. And yes, yeah, so I did the flumps. Um, I just adored doing it. You had to think of a voice for each character, um, and that was you know a, a creative process between me and the producer. Um, and who I completely lost touch with. He's a very nice man. His name was uh, David Yates. So if you're listening, David Yates, please get in touch. Um, and yes, yeah, so he'd say, okay, I say, for instance, Perkin, uh, who's the lad, he's the boy, we wanted to make him a little bit kind of, uh, we decided to give him a, 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 a bit of a, 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 a stutter to sort of make him keen and but kind of held back by by how his enthusiasm for life. So he gave him a bit of a stutter. And then Posey, well, we wanted her to be very girlish, you know, because she had a, a blue ball in her hair. <laughs> and so we made her talk like that. And then there was Mother, who had to be warm and motherly, of course. And she was busy making worm and spider pie. <laughs> and then, then there was Grandfather, who played the flumpet, so there was grandfather. And he, he was he was always playing his flumpet. 
And there was one episode, one of my favorite episodes was the one where he thought they'd forgotten his birthday. And he had this adorable song. There's no one's remembered my birthday. No one's remembered it at all. <laughs> and he's, you can see Grandpa being so depressed. How do you remember all of this? They just don't care. <laughs> well, I loved it. I just loved it. And then, of course, everyone's favourite was Poodle. Poodle, of course. Because he's only the baby. And he looks like this because he's got adidoids. So, yeah, I remember partly because when I was in Les Mis, which was quite a few years later, um, we used to come out to the stage door, especially between shows and matinee days, um, to give our autographs. Um, there was always a huge crowd out there. And then one day, a young man who was about 16 tapped me on the shoulder and said, Miss Soper, could I ask you a favour? I said, oh, my luck's in. Um, and he said, no, no. He said, I, um, I wondered if you could do me some flump voices. I said, oh. He said, well, I listened to flumps when I was under five, and I'm 16 now, but I love the flumps. So I'm standing at the stage door <laughs> doing flump voices. And then after that, it sort of became a regular weekly thing. I had to do flumps voices for the audience who'd been to see Les Mis. How amazing. So I kind of kept my practice up. Yeah, so quite fun. <laughs> yes, I loved, I loved doing flumps. Now, how have you juggled all of this with, with a family life? Well, uh, I, I suppose you would say with great difficulty. I think especially when you have young children. Uh, anyone who's in our business who's got young children will know how staggeringly difficult it is to arrange childcare uh, and to give your child or children a sort of steady, steady, secure life. I used to have a succession of nannies living in because I, I bought my house when I was in Godspell, when I was still a single girl. And it was a big house, so I had room for a living nanny. Uh, and I always managed just about to pay for a living nanny or uh, au pairs as my son grew older. But it was incredibly difficult, especially when he was a baby. A total nightmare, frankly. Um, you know, I, I I took over from Julia McKenzie in Side by Side by Sometime when my son was only six months old. And I didn't have anybody live in in those days. And um, I used to have the next door neighbours put him to bed for me. And then they would be listening out for him until I got home. And then, of course, he'd wake up at six in the morning going, hello, world, full of life and full of beans. And for me, six o'clock in the morning was halfway through my proper sleep because you can't go straight to bed after a show, as I'm sure you realize. So, uh, frankly, you know, it was it was hell on earth. Uh, but, I, you know, you get through, you come out the other side. I mean, life wasn't meant to be easy. Um, so... You know, everybody, you've never, you've never met anyone in your life who has ever had a simple, straightforward, perfectly happy life. You, We all go through difficult times and we just have to get on with it and deal with it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I did side by side and I managed to do it for about six or nine months, I think. But in the end, I, I just had to stop. I had to stop for a year. I couldn't couldn't cope with being a mother and... And the performer, it was, it was too exhausting. Yeah, I'm, I, it is so difficult. That's, and yes, I, that's I, my 
I, I know from I, I have two young children. I know how it's difficult it is for me, and I'm not do, not doing eight shows a yes. week in the West End. And my, my you know my my wife's the same. She's 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 a performer, and and she she was desperate to get back into it. But but you know since having young children, it's it's virtually impossible, as you say. It's incredibly difficult. Um, and I I'm I admire anyone. Yeah, and that, I mean I you know yeah. that, that tries and and does it and and goes back to it. I think it's an amazing achievement. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously what the matter, the thing that matters most is your children, and whether they're going to grow up to be happy, balanced, relatively sane people, and I think that has to be your priority. Uh, if you, you know, neglect your children, and you throw them from pillar to post, you know, being looked after by too many different people, it's just counterproductive because, you know, we've all met. Uh, people who have had damaging childhoods and you know they never they never really recover so I just think one has to make one's child or children one's priority and that's the end of it yeah yeah so just in summing up just just one last question can you what what would you give what advice yeah. would you give someone who was starting out in their career just as you did 50 odd years ago what advice would you give um, about what, you know, how, how do you approach this industry? What advice would you give them? Um, yes, well, it's almost where do you begin? Um, I think the first thing, because I was asking around last night at the theatre what advice everyone thought one should give. Um, and the first thing really that's come up is probably what will surprise people, which is you must be extremely enterprising and you have to find some other career that works parallel with your acting career. You need to find something that doesn't bore you silly and that will pay you enough money that you can support yourself when you're out of work. So there are lots and lots of different things you can do. Uh, it's, that's why you need to be enterprising because you've got to find what suits you. Somebody apparently runs a curtain-making business. Someone else is a professional photographer. Someone runs adult course, uh, is a coordinator for adult courses at an institute. Someone else teaches at stage school. Someone else does office work in a prison. Uh, somebody else does works front-of-house staff uh, at a theatre. Someone else does waitressing. Wow. Some people do after-dinner entertainment. Some people are driving instructors. One person has a jewellery business. She makes her own jewellery. Uh, some people do corporate gigs for weddings and parties. Some people entertain children. They, they uh, become, you know, the clown or entertainer at children's parties. Some, somebody works as a salesman for a builder's merchant. Oh, uh, somebody Eclectic else myths. delivers for de Deliveroo. So, you know, I would say, don't ever say to yourself, I am only going to be a performer, because you will never succeed. The only way to succeed as a performer is to succeed at making your life work. And that means having another job you can do and doing it and, and being creative with it. Because we are very, we are very adaptable people. We have to be adaptable. That's why we're good actors. Uh, so we must use that adaptability in real life as well. So that's the first advice, is um, 
to, to, to find something else you can do parallel with. Otherwise, you will probably have to quit the business within the first two or three years because you will not be able to survive on it. Even if you're doing the fringe, for instance, most unlikely you're going to be earning enough money to, to pay your way. So practicality is incredibly important. You've got to keep your feet on the ground. Um, then someone said, find your car stability. If, um, you know, say you're not uh, staggeringly beautiful, you've got a character face, accept the fact you're going to have character roles. Embrace them. Enjoy them. They'll last you longer. Um, then what else? Somebody else said, keep your outgoings as low as possible. In other words, don't keep popping out for a nice coffee um, or a snack. Make your own food in your own kitchen. Bring it with you. Uh, it's going to save you money. Um, so save money on the things you can save. The other thing is to keep training. So go to classes. Join the Actors Center. Make sure you're a member of Equity, the um, West, the South and Southwest um, Equity branch, for instance, is completely brilliant at helping people. They have workshops, they have casting directors meeting you, they have directors, uh, they have so much going on. Don't you know? Don't put yourself out to grass. You've got to keep at it. If you've got a good singing teacher, keep your singing lessons up whenever you can. Um, likewise, keep your dancing up. And if you're an actor and you're not very good and you feel you've got two left feet, make sure you go to rudimentary dance classes. Absolutely vital, even if you are only ever going to do straight plays, because the number of times you'll have to do some kind of dancing in a straight play, you'd be surprised. And likewise, singing songs. Learn to do those things. Um, so those are the sort of first things I say. Also, if somebody can learn a musical instrument or if they have learnt a musical instrument, do keep that up because actor, musician shows, uh, are, you know, it's another skill that helps keep you in work. Then, um, obviously, you've got to keep fit. You've got to go to Pilates lessons or yoga classes Anything to keep you fit. Um, keep yourself clean. You mustn't drink too much. Try not to smoke. Go to bed early. Look after yourself, your body. Your body is your temple. <laughs> Quite right, too. Uh, is that Gail, any good? <laughs> I think that's some really, really great advice. Uh, I, I, I think the listeners will be really appreciative of that. And as I am uh, today, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a really fantastic interview, and uh, and to have an insight into your life and your career has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Gay Soper. It's a very great pleasure. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Don't forget to check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast and please continue to spread the word. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget, be your very best.